Good morning. Uh, we are continuing our series in Titus this morning. We're going to begin chapter 3 today. We're going to concentrate on verses 1 through 8. You know, we decided to go through Titus to kind of better understand what the congregation is to look for in choosing new elders, the elders' responsibilities, and, and what a healthy church looks like. We've, we thought it would be fairly straightforward, and thank you, son. And I don't know if simple is the right word, but we thought it would, I thought it would be a little easier than what it's been as far as dealing with this this book, it's been a wonderful book. As I mentioned in chapter 1, some theologians thought that Titus should not have been part of the canon, as they, they would argue that it wasn't doctrinally rich, and, and you would have to argue that they didn't unpack it at all whatsoever to come to that conclusion. And I guess I was guilty of the same thing, just glossing over it, I've Maybe I didn't understand quite the depth of it myself. But one thing to consider is that, that Paul was writing to another pastor. Paul doesn't have to get into doctrine and, and all the deep truths. Titus understood these things, and Paul has reminded him of what to do with those things. It's drawn out so much emotion for me, and I don't think a week has gone by that Josh and I haven't talked about what it's what it's been doing in our lives and, and in convicting us. And it's, it's revealed, you know, my shortcomings as an elder and, and things that I see that I need to do better and, and the anxiety in dealing with these hard passages that I have to unpack and expound. These, these things that, you know, you, you're trying to be gentle but don't, don't negate the truths contained therein. It's been difficult, but then it reminds me that I have a great Savior. I have a great God and Father that love me in spite of all these things, all these shortcomings, and all these things that I understand that I could do better. A great Savior that laid down his life for me, a Father that loves me in spite of me. I have the Holy Spirit making intercessions on my behalf because... As, as all of us, we, I fall short. The same Spirit convicting me, goading me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake, keeping me in line, making me more Christ-like, using the washing of the Word and the Holy Spirit working within my life. All these things are contained in Titus and is a great reminder for us. Paul's encouraging Titus again with the truth that he already understands. He's encouraging him to expound these truths to the Cretans who were by nature, what does it say, evil beasts and gluttons. So not necessarily the, the cream of the crop. And after reading this, I can relate <laughs> in, in dealing with this text or this, this book. So we're in Titus chapter 3, verses 1 through 8. Please stand if you're able 
as we give honor to this text this morning. This is the infallible, authoritative word of God. Let us hear the word of our living God. Remind them to be subject to the to rulers and authorities, to obey, to be ready for every good work, to speak evil of no one, to be peaceable, gentle, showing all humility to all men. For we ourselves were also once foolish, disobedient, deceived, serving various lusts and pleasures, living in malice and envy, hateful and hating one another. But when the kindness and the love of our Savior toward man appeared, God our Savior, excuse me, toward man appeared, not by works of righteousness that we have done, but according to his mercy, he saved us through the washing of regeneration and renewing of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us abundantly through Jesus Christ, our Savior, that having been justified by his grace, we should become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. This is a faithful saying, and these things I want you to affirm constantly to those who have believed in God should be careful to maintain good works. These things are good and profitable to, to men. Well, merciful Father, as we come into your presence, we just ask that you would illuminate this text to our hearts. Lord, I pray that you would use me in spite of me. Let your word go forth and accomplish all that you set it forth to do. Bless the preaching of your word, that you may be glorified in this body of believers. My brothers and sisters in Christ would be edified. Lord, to you be the praise, the glory, and the honor forever. And all of God's children said. It says, remind them to be subject to the rulers and authorities. In Greek here, it's hoop omenesco. That's a hard one. It's an imperative of command that applies to all the instruction that Paul's getting ready to go over. It's in the present tense, which means it's to be continual, active. He's reminding us not to be hostile toward authority. Remind here is in the, as in the prior knowledge to refresh them in what they already should understand or do understand, as Paul is doing the same with Titus. You understand these things, remind them of these things. In this case, the subject of the civil authority and then on to people. We, we were to honor people, we're to be subject to the government. And there was, there was a religious dimension to the government, and there somewhat still is today. I mean, all of our, our laws are based off the commandments, and it, it all stems from there. Anything, anything good, you know, no killing or stealing or bearing false witness, all those things are illegal in our country. There's a practical atheism that, that ran rampant in the day and it is still here today. In Matthew 20, 22, 21, Jesus said, Render therefore to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. And the Jews here were trying to, to trick Jesus and, and, and ask him if, if they should pay taxes. And if he had told them you don't have to pay taxes, he would have broken the Roman law. And, on the other side of the coin, if he said, you do have to pay taxes, he was, he was robbing God, was their idea. It was a, a seemingly no-win situation, and he shut them up by saying, 
do both. Give, give back to Caesar what is his. Give to God what is his. And, and in doing so, he was saying that Caesar's face is on the coin. It's his anyway. Just give it to him. And in being subject to, to rulers and, and authorities, so, so subjection or submission is, a, is voluntary. This is, this is something that we do. Um, I submit to my wife voluntarily, vice versa. It's, it's, a, it's a give and take. As part of God's sovereign rule, he, he, he placed these rulers and authorities in place for, for the social order. He, he doesn't specify any, any tip, particular level of government, so all government in his mind here was to, to submit to the local government all the way up to the federal government. In Romans 13... Verses 1 through 7, it says, Let every soul be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God. And the, authority, the authorities that exist are appointed by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authority resists the ordinance of God. And those who resist will bring judgment on themselves. For rulers are not a terror to good works, but to evil. Do you want to be unafraid of the authority? Do what is good, and you will have praise from the same. For he is God's minister to you for good. But if you do evil, be afraid. He does not bear the sword in vain. For he is God's minister and an avenger to execute wrath upon him who practices evil. Therefore, you must be subject not only because of wrath, but also for conscience sake. For because this, you also pay taxes, for they are God's ministers attending continually to this very thing. Render therefore all their due taxes to whom taxes are due, custom to whom customs, Fear to whom fear, honor to whom honor. So you go back and you look at this. If you want to break this down, he gives seven, seven reasons to submit to the governing authorities. One, they are established by God. Two, if you resist authority, you oppose the ordinance of God. Those who oppose this, this ordinance, these ordinances will suffer condemnation. Government is designed to restrain evil. Government is a minister of God for the good of society. It is divinely empowered to punish evil or evildoers. Subjection is necessary not only for, from wrath but for conscience sake. These are good and profitable things for a, a healthy society to, to do. To obey, to be ready for every good work, it says. We're to obey rulers and authorities, right? It's, it's there. We're to comply with the, the, the rules and obligations of the government until, right up until, they're unbiblical. And then in our recent pandemic, that we've all saw what happened. We saw churches being persecuted. We saw pastors arrested. They tried to arrest even people for attending a drive-through church. Um, it was tyranny. It, the, uh, they were doing all these things while... while um, allowing or encouraging people to riot and burn down cities uh, strip clubs were still still remained open it was it was okay for them because that was so-called freedom of of speech while ours was being suppressed so up until that point obey the government if they tell you don't hold church you hold church MacArthur uh, is in a lawsuit I think still with uh, with the state of California over this they call us terrorists they they wanted to shut us down you don't have to submit to that. That's tyranny. 
these same people, they want to ban guns in the name of saving children every time a child dies with a firearm. They never blame the, the crazy person that did it. It's always the gun. When a cop shoots somebody, they blame the cop, never the gun. The world, our government, is very hypocritical, but we don't slander them. We can, we can speak of the evil, but we don't slander the person. We don't belittle them. It's kind of a hard thing to do sometimes. I'm, I'm guilty of, of making a joke of literally almost everything. And I don't mean to, to slander anyone, but in calling out the, the, the craziness that's, that's in the world, people take it personal. And I don't really mean for anyone to take it personal, but we're easily offended, and sometimes it happens. In Acts 5, the apostles were on trial for preaching Christ, and the Sadducees not wanting to blame for, for Christ's death because they were placing that blame right on them. They were trying to get, the, get them to shut up. And, and then in verse 29, Peter, Peter and the other apostles answered the, them and said, we are, we are to obey God rather than man. So right up until the point of where they were trying to hinder the gospel from going forth. The apostle says, no, we're not, we're not doing that. This is where we draw the line. We're, we're going to continue forward. So this obedience is crucial in living a peaceful life. You, you guys know if you drive 100 miles an hour down 26, you're not going to like it when you get caught. This, this, peaceful, this peaceful life, this obedience ends when the gospel is is hindered. This obedience, we are we're to give every uh, every good work a reason for every good work, but willing to do things asked of us by the government. An eagerness to serve others no matter how hostile people may be toward us. I've seen videos pleading with women going to abortion clinics saying, please don't go through with this. Please don't go through with this. They're cussed. They're hit. They're spit on while trying to save an innocent life. When the abortion laws changed in, in many states, I, some of my liberal friends on Facebook were like, Christians need to step up and they need to adopt all these kids. You guys need to do the right thing. And so I looked it up. There are 2 million families waiting to adopt children. There are 610,000 abortions a year in the United States. We could adopt more than double the kids that are being murdered. And the reason why is an abortion costs 600 to $3,000. An adoption costs 30 to $70,000. If you could flip those two numbers, do you think there would be any abortions anymore? I think not. Now, this is probably the biggest atrocity that I can think of, right, that, that our government has made legal. I will absolutely say it's wrong till my dying breath. But I wouldn't go to an abortion clinic and shout down some woman who is hurting and going in there and getting ready to go through that process. I would tell her I loved her. And this is what's best for you, that you repent, that you save this child and offer help if necessary. 
We're to minister to everyone, regardless of how crazy we think they are, how debaucherous their sin may be. We're to do basically whatever it takes to make society better. We can't stop everything. We can't fix everything. It starts with us. It starts with the, the love of God, the gospel working inside of us, and then that gospel pouring out of us into society as we minister to others, saying this is, this is what's good and right. Please repent. Please, please turn from this wickedness. Never, never belittling them. This includes praying for those in, in our government. How many of you have prayed for our president recently? Zero hands. After reading this, guess what I did? I prayed for our president. H.B. Charles, when we were at the, uh, at the conference in California, I went to his, his breakout session. I really like H.B. Charles, and he started out. His, his session was about pastoral prayer. And part of the pastoral prayer was you go through all these things, and one of them was praying for the government. He said, he says, uh, I'm a, a black pastor and a black con- with a black congregation. I think I can say black since he did it. If you, if you want me to clean it up, I guess, uh, melanie blessed. They have, they have they've been blessed with more melanin than me. But he said he would go through this pastoral prayer, and he was, he was noting that, a black congregation gets a little more excited and they get into what he's saying and, and there's a lot of amens and there's a lot of yes Lord and, and bless him Lord when he's, when he's going through this prayer and he would get to the president crickets the whole congregation just shut up we are to pray for our leaders and, and it's not the one you see uh, everybody's saying the, the Psalm 109 8 let his, let his days be few and another take his office that's not a that's not a good prayer to pray if you want to. And honestly, for our president, we need, to, we need to pray for his salvation first. His cognitive ability, sadly, is failing. Um, I've seen that firsthand with family members. It's not a pretty thing. And yes, I've made a joke about it. And I was wrong. Shouldn't do that. Their salvation first. Their their health, and then we're to pray that, that they would lead in a right way, a, a way that benefits society as a whole, not just their back pockets or, or their interests or the, whoever's paying them the most money to, to get past whatever they want to get past. If it doesn't contradict the word of God, short story is do it that God may be glorified. And then to speak evil of no one, blasphemeo is to speak evil here. Do not blaspheme anyone. We think of blasphemy as, as toward God only, right? You're blaspheming God in doing these things you're, or saying these things. That's blasphemy. And we don't really think of blaspheming people. And this is insults, abusive speech, uh, Defamatory remarks, rumors, lying on others. Anything that tears a person down and elevates yourself is blasphemy. John MacArthur says, We are to malign no one, not even those who contribute to the most assault 
on biblical standards, even those who spit in the face of, of God and, and his standards, even those people were not to belittle them. Years ago, a guy shared a, a video, a pastor, he shared a video of um, was the land of the apes or the monkeys that took over some planet, is that right? And the guy said, not only was that a great show, but it reminded me of, of where, where my ancestors came from and how we evolved from apes. And the, the, the pastor's response was, that just goes to show you what an idiot you really are. And uh, I got in trouble because I said, hey, maybe that wasn't cool. And then he attacked me personally, attacked my wife personally. And then that definitely wasn't cool. But it happens. I've done it. So politicians are usually at the, uh, at the top of the list uh, for slander. There's a joke that politicians move mechanics up a notch on the, in society. In 1 Timothy 2, Verses 1 to 4, it says, Therefore I exhort, first of all, that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and giving of thanks be made for all men, for kings and all who are in authority, that we may lead a quiet and peaceable life in all godliness and reverence. For this is good and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior, who desires that all men be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. For there is one God and one mediator between God and men, the man Jesus Christ. Genuinely praying for our leaders, wholeheartedly praying for those who are over us. We don't think about that much, do we? All we think about is the oppression and how much we don't like them for the oppression that we allegedly go through. We're not oppressed in the United States yet, not a lot. you got to keep in mind, too, that disagreeing with someone is not slander. You can disagree. We live in a world that everybody wants you to rubber stamp every debaucherous thing that they want to indulge in, right? I want to live this way, and you will refer to me by these, these particular words, and I, I require that you uh, lie and say that I'm something that I'm not because I just want you to do that. Um, you can disagree. You have to disagree with a lot of things, but you can't, you can't belittle the person. No matter how crazy they are, you can't call them crazy. They're automatically going to be offended by the truth. It's, it's natural. People are offended by things that they don't agree with. If, if they think some other way, it's their way or the highway. They don't care what you think, and they're going to be automatically offended. And to be peaceful, to be kind, not quarrelsome, being congenial, not seeking personal advantage. We, we get offended by other people's sin that hinders our relationship with them. We want to call them out, say, you, 
you've done X, Y, or Z, so I can't be acquainted with you, and you're crazy, and you're an idiot, and any number of things. Another pastor told me in confidence one time that he hated, he hated homosexuals. Couldn't stand them, despised them, didn't care anything about them, not their eternal soul, nothing. He told me this. Again, I was dumbfounded. I've, I've never met anyone that I despised enough that I would hope that they would spend eternity in hell or disliked. I don't think I've despised anybody that they would spend an eternity in hell. And the reality is that every human being that's ever been born, even Hitler, was made in the image of God. He was, he was born and created in the image of God, just like every one of us, and that alone deserves a certain level of respect as, as we would respect anyone. We often don't do it. We set aside our personal concerns for our own welfare. We, we should be setting aside our concerns for our own welfare and ministering to others, especially unbelievers. We, we as brothers and sisters in Christ, we minister to each other naturally. But when it comes to someone that disagrees with us or we disagree with them, we want to we cut ties. We don't want anything to do with them. We want to wash our hands of it. And I'm not saying there's not a time to walk away. Sometimes you gotta you gotta move on. Because if it's a if it's a fruitless endeavor, then 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 you're just you're just adding to their demise, their destruction. So this peaceable, when I read this I thought of Josh, always the peacemaker. Always seeing the good. Always seeing the good in everyone. Gentle. Gentle here is a sweet reasonableness, moderate and fair. Treating people reasonably, genuinely, with a with an affection, a genuine affection for their eternal salvation. And showing all humility humility to all men. As in everyone you come in contact here with here is in this instance the all means all. You know we say that all doesn't always mean all. In this instance, it's all everyone. And meekness is the idea here. This humility comes from knowing how truly wretched, truly wretched that you were. In Second Corinthians. One through six. Now I, Paul, myself, am pleading with you by the meekness and gentleness of Christ, who in presence am lowly among you, but being absent and bold toward you, I beg you that when I am present that I may not be bold with that confidence by which I intend to be bold against some who think of us all, think of us as if we walked according to the flesh. For though we walk in the flesh, we do not war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but mighty in God, for pulling down strongholds, casting down arguments, and every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God, bringing every thought into captivity to the obedience of Christ, and being ready to punish all disobedience when your obedience is fulfilled. Paul is pleading with the meekness or humility of Christ in verse 1 
he's, he's, he's ultimately tearing down strongholds with these arguments that exalt itself against the truth of Christ. He's tearing down these ideas, these ideologies, with, without tearing down the person. It almost reminds me of the last time, um, I think it was the first of the month, going in with a, with a scalpel sharply and, and removing things, right? That was within the church, but it could apply here. Tearing down strongholds, removing these ideas that exalt themselves above the knowledge of God here. He's not, he's not derogatory or prideful in, in any way. You know, a lot, of, a lot of people go in with their chest poked out because we've got it figured out because we're Christians and, and we're very demeaning and derogatory to the, toward these people that we're, we're talking to. I mean, when we're trying to tear down a stronghold, they're, they're going to be offended enough that you're tearing down their ideology and you don't have to call them stupid or ignorant or a sinner or any number of things, even though they, are, they may be. This, this truth is offensive enough. People don't like it. In Matthew eleven twenty nine. it says, Take my yoke upon you, for it is easy. And we want to we want to place a yoke on people and we want to beat them over the head and, and try to beat them into submission with the truth when we just should present the truth. Being offended is automatic. And then how, we, how, how do we do this? By sanctifying the Lord Jesus in our hearts, being ready to satisfy everyone that asks for a reason for the hope that is within you in 1 Peter 3.15. This is the first step. If I make somebody mad, are they going to ask for the hope that it was within me? If I insult them, are they going to say, tell me more about this Jesus? Not a chance. Not even close. And then we see the why. It says, for we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, deceived. Paul just described our attitudes toward government and all people. Now he's given a basis for us to do these things because we should be continually reminding ourselves of where we came from, our disobedience, our alienation from God. This is where we were at at one time in our lives, just like these unbelievers or these people that are doing these things that we find so gross. We were doing the same things. Our, our righteousness... We have the righteousness of Christ. It's not our own. It comes from God. It's not of ourselves. It was, it was purchased by Christ. It's empowered by the Holy Spirit. Long story short, don't forget where you were, where you came from. It's an easy thing to do. Rather than slander these unbelievers, love them. Robbie Zacharias said, love is the supreme ethic. We forget that. And Paul says, we here, he's not, he's not excluded. In being foolish, going our own headstrong way, no exceptions. And, and disobedience is a willful rejection of God's truth, a rejection of his ways. The deceived person is one that's been seduced by, by false doctrine or sin or cults. Even the name of science, they're, they're, they're deceived. 
this deception leads to disobedience. Only further away and further away. They claim, they claim truth in any number of things, but never in God, never, never in Christ, never the Bible. And in serving various lusts and pleasures, the word here for serving is deluo, means slave, right? We went through the doulos in chapter 1. It's a derivative of doulos. We're being slave to sin. And see, the doulos was, was, uh, was, uh, is a willing servant, someone who willfully submits to, to servitude, like Paul is saying, I, I am a doulos. Uh, I'm, I'm a slave of God, a bondservant, a willing slave. The deluo is not, not so much willing. It's, it's more of a, you're captured. You're, you're deceived by sin. You're caught up in it, ensnared by it, trapped by sin. That's where we were. Enslaved to this deception. We were slave to sin. Living in malice and envy. Malice and envy, simply put, is evil. And envy is not being satisfied ever with, with what you have. And it's constantly making you want more and more and more. You're envious of what this person has and what that person has. Hateful and hating one another. Out of envy comes spite, and out of spite comes hate. Hateful people hate anyone that, that does not benefit them in some way. Eventually, everyone will at some time disappoint them, and in the end, they end up alone because they hate everyone. Hatefuls, hatefulness is not a, appealing even to the hateful person because it's just, it just becomes reciprocal. I hate you, you hate me. And it goes on and on and on. Families fall apart from hatefulness. I'm not getting what I think I deserve from my wife, and she's not getting what she deserves from me, and it, it turns bitter and it turns into hate. Hateful adults raise hateful kids, and hateful kids grow up to be hateful adults, and it's just a vicious cycle on and on and on. And it's, it's, a, it's a common practice to, to destroy others in the name of, of self-preservation, this hatefulness. And they return the favor. bitterness and it just keeps feeding and feeding and feeding we were living in darkness blinded and separated from the truth of God and in this we've manufactured the world around us today this hateful hate filled world that we live in we did it for Christians love should be at the forefront God loved us when we were wretched sinners. And that love should pour from us. From this love, this self-servitude is diminished. And servitude is amplified. This awareness of where we come from should humble us, not make us proudful. Boastful. We should we should be more compassionate as Christ was compassionate toward us. Being dead made us alive. We really 
can't expect to act any differently than, than we did. And we hear the, we look at the government, our nation as, as a whole, and, and complain they are not adhering to the, how many times have you heard this, the, the Judeo-Christian principles that it was founded on. We're expecting these sinful people, unrepentant people to hold to a standard of righteousness, these Judeo-Christian principles, they, they call it. We're not a Christian nation, not even close. We're a nation with Christians in it, but we're not a Christian nation. These principles were, were adopted from, from biblical truths, but we strayed so far from it. We can't, act, we can't expect anyone to, to live in a way that is, that is contradictory to their nature. And in, in reality, you know, the sinners are going to sin. It's natural. It's, it's what they do. And then we as saints that have a new nature that despise sin, we still sin. And you look at Romans, Paul. Romans 7. 15 to 19 here. says, for what I am doing, I do not understand. For, I, for what I will to do, that I do not practice. But what I hate, that I do. If then I do what I will not to do, I agree with the law, and that is good. But now it is no longer I who do it, but the sin that dwells in me. For I know that in me, that is my flesh, nothing good dwells. For to will is present with me, but how to perform what is good... I do not find. For the good that I will to do, I do not do. But the evil I will not to do, that I practice. It took me a long time to uh, completely understand that because it's a lot of <laughs> back and forth that was really hard for me to grasp. But essentially, he's saying that he's still contending with the flesh. And the things that he, his desires are, which is to do good, which is what is pleasing to God, which the Holy Spirit has has put in within him these desires he would like to do those things but he's contending with the old man the flesh and he fails just as we do so that if we are saints who still sin how can we expect sinners to be any better it can't happen we uh, we'd like to hold others to a standard that we can't even keep in all reality So we were all once these things outlined in verse 3. And then there's the good news. It says, but when the kindness and the love of God our Savior toward man appeared. So here God's mercy and his grace appeared. It appeared, us, it appeared to us in the name of, of salvation. Our enslavement. The, our enslavement to sin is ended. This truth that, that set us free has been re revealed to us in the person of Christ. And this kindness, this very kindness was set toward us was, was before the foundation of the world. He was active in our salvation before creation itself. The word love here in Greek is philanthropia. It's where we get the, uh, the English word philanthropy. 
It's two words, uh, philos, an affection for, anthropos, man, affection for man. MacArthur says it's an eagerness to deliver someone from pain, trouble, or danger. God the Father wants to deliver us from pain, trouble, or danger. This, this kindness and this love together, this demonstrates the agape love, the highest, the highest love. And in John 3.16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. This is the agape love summed up in this one verse. And this he delivered us from oppression and the danger of sin. We're in danger. He saved us from himself. He was the one that was going to apply the danger or apply the, the wrath that resulted in this danger by living in sin. It says, not by, not by works righteousness that we have done. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. For you have been saved by grace through faith, and that not of works, lest any man should boast. As we've heard before, the only contribution that we made to our salvation was the sin that made it necessary. Sal salvation, grace, and faith are all three are gifts from God. As people want to argue that faith comes from within us, and it's simply not true. In Isaiah 64.6, it says our greatest works are as a filthy rags. And I've opted to spare you from uh, what's being referred to there. If you want to talk about it later, come see me. But it's not the, the rags that you clean your countertop with. But according to his mercy, he saved us. Mercy. Grace is the means by which we are forgiven. Mercy is the compassion of a just judge that adopts us and then clothes us in the righteousness of his son. That's mercy. Then the healing process begins via sanctification. As Josh went over last Sunday, we're being conformed to the image of Christ. He has saved us. He is saving us, and he will save us. And then we're fully saved in our death, and we're in our glorified bodies in the presence of the living God. We're made whole. And we see through the washing and regeneration and the renewing of the Holy Spirit, this washing or regeneration is the new birth. It's, it's cleansing sin. We're being cleansed from this sin, which stems from trusting in the finished work of Christ. The Holy Spirit is at work in us. This cleansing of the soul brings this new life. We're no longer dead in trespasses and sins. We're no longer deceased but made alive in Christ we've, we've came into a new existence this new birth brings new, new desires this, this new life begins here and is carried out through all eternity We're, it starts here and never ends so the Holy Spirit washing and regeneration is the is Simply the Holy Spirit at work in us, in whatever capacity, reminding of, of, of the truths of God, sanctifying us, making us more Christ-like. And it says this, the Spirit of God has been poured out on us generously. 
being saved from the frustration and this enslavement. It's then empowered by, by the work of Christ. And this, this is it says who, who he poured out on us abundantly through Christ Jesus our Savior. This liberal amount of grace, this grace upon grace, grace always grace, continually washing in, in the regeneration. Again, by the by the finished work of Christ. This one that which salvation is made possible. This is the only way. In verses 4 to 6 here, we see the triune God at work in our salvation. Verse 4, the love of God, the Father, appeared. Verse 5, the work of the Holy Spirit is revealed. In verse 6, by the means which it has made all possible, Christ. All working together. He is just and his justice is satisfied in Christ. We were sinners and deserving wrath in hell. It says the, we know the, the wages of sin is death. We've earned eternal death. And the wages in reality are a debt. And this debt will be paid by us in hell or by, by Christ. There's only two options there. And you think of the the thieves on the thieves on the cross on on the other side of Christ. That's all humanity represented there. You have the sinless one. You have the unregenerate one, and you have the one that was saved by grace through faith in almost an instant. All of humanity. There's only three. There was only a sinless one, a sinner, and a saint. That's it. All represented right there. Christ is the only substitutionary atonement accepted by God. If you want to kind of remember it, God thought it, the Son bought it, and the Spirit wrought it. He brought it to fruition. It's a joint effort. Three in play. A joint effort by one. That's the Trinity at work. It says that being justified by His grace... We like to think that, that being justified means as if we had never sinned, and it's not really the case. It's, it sounds kind of warm and fuzzy, but it's really not the case. Justification is a legal term. It means declared or made righteousness. Righteous, I'm sorry. It can't be as if we had never sinned. It's just that we are found not guilty. We're not guiltless but we're released from the guilt. Our debt is paid. It is finished, as Christ said, by God's grace, apart from any effort on our own. Nothing we did. Justification is synonymous with with salvation. John Calvin says this. This is what does he mean by the word justified. The context seems to demand that its meaning shall be extended further than to the imputation of righteousness. So it starts with the imputed righteousness of Christ in which we are seen as holy before God. And sanctification begins by the work of the Holy Spirit working in conjunction with the Word, just as Christ had prayed in John 17, 17. He said, sanctify them with your truth. Your Word is truth. This is the work of the Holy Spirit. This sanctification, again, is, is made complete in our glorification and our death. 
we're made fully like Christ. And it says that we become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. Romans 8, 16. It says the Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God, and joint heirs with Christ, if indeed we suffer with him, that we may also be glorified together. We are adopted children of God upon salvation. We are heirs according to the promise. We are joint heirs with Christ. In Galatians, it says there are neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, but all are one in Christ Jesus. He goes on to say that we are heirs according to the promise of Abraham, the same heirs as the Jews have had since the promise was made. And then we go to Romans 9, and he says that not all of Israel are Israel. So in that, that means that your bloodline does not dictate you're part of the true Israel. The true Israel are those who are in Christ, those who have placed their faith in the Savior that was to come or the one that had came all through history. The dispensationalists would argue that because they say that all of Israel is God's chosen people and God loves all of Israel even though they're unrepentant and Christians are just kind of a side note that he kind of likes a lot or loves a little. I don't know how they put it, but it's kind of a weird dynamic with them. He, uh, he really loves Israel, but you're cool too. It's, it's kind of the gist of it, and it's not true. God loves you as much as any, any natural-born Jew that has ever been born. He loves you with the same love that he has toward his own son. We are heirs according to the same promise. We are Israel. And some people will say that's replacement theology. It's not replacement theology. It's just plain theology. If you read, this is the hope of eternal life. Each member of this household of God has an equal inheritance in the riches of God. The historical appearance, the life and death and the resurrection of Christ guarantees that, that promise, this inheritance. God's, God has acted. His promises are secure in his truths. He has said these things. It says this is a faithful saying. And these things, that which Paul had covered in verses 1 to 7 here. This faithful saying and these things. So verses 1 to 7 here. In 1 and 2, we have with proper conduct, you know, how you act toward go- the government and, and society as a whole. And 3, three to 7, we have the, the basis for right living. In verse 7, we have salvation's result. It says, I want you to affirm this constantly. Titus, remind them constantly of this, these things, these things that I just went over. As a pastor, Titus, these are the, these are the truths that you're to to remind everyone of without wavering, without ceasing remind them of these things remember he's still dealing with lying and gluttonous evil beast of Cretans here the, just as we were 
that those who believed in God, the ones whom salvation was granted to, should be careful to maintain good works. Christians are called to a higher standard, a higher calling. The standard of conduct is is to be Christ-like. Our conduct, the love of God in us should be reflected through us. We came from disobedience into obedience. And we can only assume or come to the conclusion that this is attainable because it says to do these things. But we cannot do it apart from the Holy Spirit. We're devoted to Christ and we will be devoted to these things by this Holy Spirit. This is, this is a work that is within us. The Holy Spirit brings to fruition good works. It, it's an outpouring of that Spirit working within us. It says these things are good and profitable to men. God's philanthropy, his philanthropic love has been shown to us. Believers and unbelievers, again, are created in the image of God and both deserve the same respect. No matter how wrong or right they are. Imago Dei. That alone is worthy of respect. We're a dim reflection of this love of Christ that's shown within us. We're not, we don't have it all down. We don't have it right. So it's, it's a little jaded. It's, it's, it's not as bright as the love of God, the love of Christ that's within us. But it's there. We're commanded to be the light of the world, right? Our speech and, and conduct toward unbelievers should and will ultimately be that which brings God the most glory. You can really sum this whole section up. When Christ was asked what was the greatest commandment, he gave them two. He said, love God and love people. For this love is the supreme ethic. From that, everything else stems. Let us pray. Merciful Father, we thank you so much for this Lord's Day. We thank you for your word that we may receive instruction and reminders of, of how you would look like for us to be, that which, which brings you the most glory and honor. Lord, we thank you for the Lord Jesus Christ who died in our place that we may even know you, that we may even come into your presence to even pray to you. Lord, I just ask that the, not, the sermon would, would not end here, that we would pray for our leaders and be kind to all those around us. And Lord, let, them, let us give a, a hope for the, that which is within us, which is Christ, that we may share your love. We love you and we praise you. It's in Christ's name we all pray. All of God's children said.